0: today by Christine Emba, an opinion columnist at the Washington Post and the author of a new book called Rethinking Sex, which uh, the subject matter could not be more in the feminine chaos wheelhouse. It's all about sex and consent and the effect of pornography on heterosexual pairings and heterosexual pairings in general. So uh, just very much the kind of subject matter we talk about on the podcast a lot. And Christine, thanks so much for joining me today thanks for having me, so I wanted to jump right in to talk about what prompted you to write a book about heterosexual sex, really a kind of an off trend topic it's uh you know not the popular thing right now <laughs> <laughs> it's It's really kind it the blooms off the rose. um so what made you want to kind of dive into this at this point?
1: Yeah, <laughs> not a popular topic at all. People hate talking about sex. No. So as a journalist at The Post, I've always been interested in questions of culture and society and ethics um, and how we live those, including, you know, gender. Um, and Me Too was a galvanizing moment in like 2017, 2018. I was writing a lot of columns about the Harvey Weinstein case and the shitty media men list and all of that. Um and to me, it showed that like many of the problems that we had thought would have been resolved by the sexual revolution and the feminist movements hadn't actually gone away. You know, women were still wrestling with this stuff. And some of those cases had clear answers, which was great. Um, you know, Harvey Weinstein, don't drag people into hotel rooms and rape them. Like we don't do that anymore. It's good advice. <laughs> yeah. I. You know, I. it's good that we've gotten to that place. But then there were all these other stories. Um, so actually those were the ones like the shitty media men list, cat person, the aziz and sorry thing, that surfaced tricky issues that weren't so easily resolved and that were causing young people, women especially, a lot of pain and sadness. And so I wanted to like dig into those more deeply and take stock of where we were figuring out what seemed to be sort of ailing our sexual culture that we were still dealing with this stuff. What assumptions were we holding that weren't serving us? Where did we think the sexual revolution should have taken us? And where did we end up? And how did consent figure into all of this? Because, you know, we talked so much about consent and how consent would be, you know, the thing that cures our sexual ills. And yet, clearly, there is still a lot of bad stuff happening, even if it was consensual, actually.
0: Yeah, it's interesting now um, that one of the things that's happened with respect to the Me Too movement... as it started to move away from being centered on workplace misconduct and started to be more about sort of litigating interpersonal harms, um, it became almost this article of faith that anytime something goes wrong between a man and a woman um, in any heterosexual pairing, that it had something to do with consent, that it's some kind of consent or me too issue. So that, you know, anytime a man is disappointing in any way, It only ever seems to be centered on, like, you know, well, like, did he ask permission? And it leaves so much out. You know, there's so much that you don't talk about when you're only talking about
1: what somebody was willing to allow to have happen. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the major points in this book that, you know, consent is a legal point, you know, it's a way to avoid risk, basically. (laughs) I mean, in some ways, it was kind of invented by like college administrators who want to be able to like clear cases off their plates, right? And as such, it's great for telling us, you know, here's what not to do to, you know, not be arrested for felony sexual assault. But that's a floor, you know, that's like the bar is low. (laughs) And we want the bar to be higher, you know, we have a floor, it shouldn't have been the ceiling in any of these cases. And I think that this is a flaw with just relying on consent to tell us to adjudicate any sort of sexual problem that we have. It doesn't, it leaves a lot of gray, right? It doesn't tell us how consent was obtained, whether what your partner was feeling and whether that's okay, whether even the sex that you have ostensibly consented to or gotten consent for is actually good for us because we can consent to things that are still bad. And so that's why I argue that we need something bigger than consent to really begin to address these, like the sexual malaise that we're facing. We need an actual ethic and a way to say that things are actually right or wrong, not just legal or illegal.
0: I wonder if the use of consent isn't just not enough, but maybe being misconstrued in certain key ways. Because when you think about signing a consent form for, say, a medical procedure, you're not really saying that in consenting, you're going to mitigate risk. It's more that you accept the presence of risk. You know that you're consenting to do something that has an uncertain outcome. And you're not, you know, you're basically saying, I'm not going to, get upset or I'm not going to get legally upset if this turns out to be a disappointing experience. But right now the way that consent is invoked in sexual encounters it's sort of as though people expect it to protect them from having a bad time. They're like I consent to have a good time, but you can't really just you can't draw the line there. So do you think that there's, you know, a limit to to the idea of how safe emotionally we can actually make sex just with consent as a framework.
1: That's a really interesting distinction. Um, And I'm glad you bring that up because I I think you're right. I would agree with you actually. Sex is fraught. Like Even at the best of times, sex is a complex act Um, and people tend to have feelings about it. And there's just a lot going on. And again, consent is like a pretty small criteria and doesn't, Address all of that. This was one of the other big things that my book is about. I think we have to be honest about that fact that sex is, in fact, maybe meaningful and unruly. Um, people's emotions are involved. Like just because you consent to something doesn't make it risk free. And we should admit that and then be honest about what we're trying to get out of sex. And, you know, I think that the focus on consent means that people don't really think about and talk about all of the other things that are wrapped up in sex and what that implies. And that leads to a lot of harm. Yeah,
0: I wonder too if it frames sex as something that's sort of inherently dangerous. This is something that I've thought a lot about in terms of um, you know how we warn young women, particularly away from sex today versus how we warned it away from them, warned them away from it, excuse me. Uh, when I was growing up in the like mid to late 90s, the focus was very much on the idea that, you know, you were going to want to have sex because sex was fun and you would have a good time, but then there would be consequences in the form of pregnancy or STDs. So the idea was like, you know, are you really going to, you know, for for what, 15 minutes of fun, are you going to really risk, you know, the rest of your life? Um, and someone's like, how do you make it last 15 minutes? But. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know this was very this was very key at the at the time there was at least embedded in the education you know around sex the idea that it was something that you would actually want to do and the reasons why you shouldn't do it had to do with the consequences that happened afterwards you know even if it was going to be fun in the moment but now the way that we talk about it and the way that we focus so much on consent it seems really to Kind of envision sex as something that is inherently dangerous. The act in and of itself um, can only ever be either safe or bad. There's nothing beyond that. There's no point at which it becomes like exciting or desired. It's as though we're sort of telling young women that they have to be on guard at all times because if they lose focus, The man that they're in bed with is going to do something that they don't like, and that's going to be it. Like, it's going to be very traumatic and it's going to ruin them for the rest of their lives.
1: I think I would argue that there are maybe two things going on, and that makes the experience of sex kind of confusing for a lot of people. So, on the one hand, you know, we have this idea in sort of our sexual culture that's perpetuated by kind of mass media and sort of a bastardized definition of sex positivity and what being a liberated modern person or liberated feminist means, which says that, you know, sex is whatever. It's just like a physical thing that we do with each other. It's fun. It's awesome. The more of it you have, the better, but actually it doesn't matter. Like it's not a big deal. You shouldn't have feelings about it. It's not, it doesn't need to be emotional. Just be cool. And then on the other hand, we have this idea that like, still, sex is like amazing. uh, The most important thing, it's like, what makes you an adult? What makes you kind of a real human agent in the world? It's sort of, it's how we define ourselves. It's sort of everything. But we won't really talk to you about like, what it means or like, sort yeah, in some ways, the risks involved or like, the mixed feelings that you might have. As long as you're consenting, it should be good. Um, And so then you end up in this space where it's felt that you should be having sex and enjoying it. And also something that I talk about in the book, um, a term coined by the law professor Robin West, hedonic dysphoria, where it's assumed that anything you consent to must be good. And so if you consent to sex and then you experience it as bad you begin to question your own self-belief and your own experiences and you think that the problem is with you. Um, and it makes you kind of scared of yourself and untrusting of your own experience. And so I think it kind of ping-pongs between the sex means nothing and sex means everything and sex doesn't have any consequences, but maybe sex has all of the consequences. And there's no real way to adjudicate or talk about like the feelings in between. So,
0: one of the chapters in your book is called "We're Liberated and We're Miserable," which I thought was that really struck me. Um, that this idea of like being being liberated, you know, you're supposed to have this freedom. Yeah, as you were saying, you know, it's supposed to mean that you're an adult. Um, but as you have described it, you know, there are all of these sort of competing forces and competing pressures. So, not only does it sound miserable, but it doesn't really sound like freedom.
1: Yeah, no, that's I I think that's really true. In some ways it feels to a lot of young men and women, and I think women especially, that the sexual revolution and the feminist movement were supposed to free them up, right? Like now you're free to have sex, you're free to pursue your own desires. Um you should be out there doing it. And that has created almost a competing pressure right in the opposite direction it's still an expectation except instead of the expectation being you know you're chaste until marriage it's now like you have to be out there having sex like going on dates with all these guys otherwise you're a bad feminist or something um and then again there's the only boundary is consent so <laughs> it's kind of hard to you know criticize what's happening or critique your experiences because we're told like, as long as they're consensual, they they must be good, like everything must be fine. So I think that that creates a lot of confusion and distress for women, especially.
0: So does sex positivity, as it was conceived of in this sort of like late 90s, early 2000s feminist movement play a role here, where previously, you were as a young woman, you were expected to say no, it was, you know, there was this, this idea that, like you know, you were the gatekeeper; the guys were horny, bestial entities who could not possibly be expected to control themselves. So, you know, you had to be the one putting on the brakes. Um, and then, having removed the stigma—I mean, or supposedly—from sex for young women, um, that was supposed to be liberating. But instead, it just came with instead its own kind of attendant set of pressures. To now, instead of being pressured to say no, you were expected to
1: say yes to prove that you're not like a sex-negative prude. Yeah. So I think this is kind of, it's a complicated shift, actually. And I try and write about this in the book. Um, the original definition of sex positivity, it was a really specific thing, actually. Um, it came out of what are known as the feminist sex wars, you know, when Andrea Dorkin and Catherine McKinnon and um, other activists were trying to suggest that the feminist movement needed to be strongly against porn, strongly against sex work. Um, and that was seen as, you know, suppressive by other feminists who termed themselves, instead of anti-sex, pro-sex. And they were like, well, sex, what we actually want to say is that we sh- women shouldn't be forced to not express themselves in order to hold up this veneer of, you know, morality um actually just women's wants should be respected. Women should be allowed to live in the world as they want. And that was their idea of sex positivity. Um but then, you know, like utopia is hard, right? Um transformative movements often get kind of co-opted. And it feels like that's what happened with the sort of definition of sex positivity and almost the feminist movement in general. Um because suddenly you had, you know, places like playboy um and cosmo girl which sort of glommed onto this idea of sex positivity and you know playboy and men's magazines and mass media especially turned it into sex positivity means women being up for sex with men so you know sex positivity means having lots of sex and being chill about it which is not the original definition
0: That's fascinating. So at the start, yeah, I suppose it really wasn't that hard to be sex positive if sex negative was represented by Andrea Dworkin. Like You only have to move (laughs) very incrementally in the direction of- Not like the most lovable (laughs) movement leader. Yes. Right. Yeah. How did we progress from all you have to be is not Andrea Dworkin to be sex positive to Sex positivity being embodied by magazines like Cosmo, where I'm thinking about not just how male-centric or male desire-centric the idea of sex positivity became, but how goofy. Where it was like, oh, like you know, here are ten different ways to like put foodstuffs on your boyfriend's penis and lick it off. (laughs) Scrunchy trick. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I remember seeing advice i don't remember when this was and maybe it's something that i've made up i kind of hope that i hallucinated this but they told you to put a donut around the dong no, and then you did eat. not hallucinate that oh no <laughs> that was a real thing uh, <laughs> i remember this yeah that's that's repulsive um so how did we get you know i mean from like just don't be andrea dworkin to put a donut on your boyfriend's penis
1: and eat it off yeah again i mean movements are easily co-opted still by, you know, (laughs) whoever has the most power in society. Um, and that's, you know, still men, um, and many men who are like Hugh Hefner want to find ways to get women to have sex with them. Um, and also I think mass media, which is interested in selling things and sex sells, um, and then, and this is kind of meta, but in some ways capitalism a little bit. Um, which again can sell you things. Um, And when you are inspired to be an autonomous out there individual living on your own without, you know, relationships or community, um, A, you have to buy more stuff Um, and, you know, B, you're like a free sort of individual and like the best kind of consumer producer and worker um, who you can be because you're, you're unattached. So it's it's kind of in the interest of all of these groups to make being settled down um, unattractive, basically. Ah, Now I just want to go back and find out if secretly,
0: like, there was a Dunkin' Donuts ad sponsorship <laughs> happening with Cosmo at the same time as they were like, you know, they were like, oh, you know, by the way, <laughs> you can be I a mean, good capitalist and a good wonder.
1: lover. <laughs> I mean, like, if you think about even today, right? Like, tinder and okay keep it all these dating apps like they love celebrating like the single life and like being the best single and that just means that you swipe on tinder more and you look at tinder ads and you make them money (laughs) so this is
0: something that i'm completely unfamiliar with which i'm increasingly grateful for i've been married for about 14 years so i'm completely missed the dating app revolution i've never experienced being on a dating app um do you feel that the rise of these apps, which I guess are sort of, I mean, they do foment a certain kind of culture, right? Like they, they really mm-hmm. sort of are a continuation of this very casual um, and very commodified sort of transactional idea of sex that started maybe on college campuses and when it, when it was called hookup culture. Um, how do you see that fitting into
1: what's happening now? Yeah, honestly, I have a whole chapter um that kind of centers around this question in the book, and it's actually called Sex is Not Private. I have this story in the book, actually, about a woman who I talked to who's, you know, telling me about her sexual experiences during an interview, and she talks about, she tells me about how she ordered a guy off Tinder, and, like, that's <laughs> how she phrases it, and we're, like, talking, we continue to talk, and then, like, a few moments later, she's like, I don't. I don't know why I said that <laughs> it actually sounds kind of bad now that I think about it. Um, but like, that's an example of, you know, kind of this commoditized mindset, how it's so easy to slip into because you know, these apps really do make it as though you're swiping through cards in a deck, like everybody is interchangeable. There's always the next person. Um, and in that chapter, I talk about how, Hey, yes, it does make things, you know, feel commoditized and transactional. Um, and B, you don't feel responsibility or accountability to the people that you're dating. Because, you know, before you might've met your first date or your sexual partner, like through friends or through your family or even the workplace. And because you maybe were embedded in a community together, that person knew that they had to behave fairly decently or else people would find out so they were more likely to. But if you only meet people through apps, and it's like you and this person you're never going to see again, and they know that, like, why not send somebody a dick pic? Like, who are they going to tell? Like, why not (laughs) ghost them? (laughs) Like, no one's going to call you out on it. Um, And that, I think, has actually degraded uh, the sexual culture because, you know, people are not responsible for each other. There's no accountability. And for that reason, far less care.
0: It's interesting because I was just thinking about the case of West Elm Caleb um, as an example of what happens when you try within the confines of that sort of digital, very, like you said, commoditized culture to... Nevertheless, introduce this sense of like sort of community accountability where you have a whole bunch of women coming together and being like that guy. And I think that Caleb was actually – was he on Hinge? He might have been. And I think Hinge was created, if I'm not mistaken – as a, a way of trying to kind of recreate that meeting through friends um, dynamic that used to be the most popular way for people to meet their spouse, I think it was that was the number one, and then meeting at work was the number two. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, you did tend to find somebody who was within a community where you had like mutual ties, and where yes, there would be a certain amount of pressure to like at least maintain a basic level of etiquette, less you end up with a reputation for being a cad. Um, But even though Hinge obviously tried to recreate that to a certain extent, clearly it failed um, because our networks are so much larger and more sprawling. Um, I mean, to be Facebook friends with somebody does not imply a relationship the way that it it would to... Like, Mm -hmm. sit next to them at church week after week. Um, So that's interesting. But I wanted to return to um, the consent discussion for a second because you were talking about how, like, the sexual liberation um, was supposed to mean the liberty to pursue your desires. And in that context, I wanted to talk about yes means yes and mm-hmm. what kind of promise that had. Um, so I'm going to just rant for a second because this is one of my this is <laughs> one of my it. favorite topics. Um, when yes means yes first came on the scene in like 2010. I was really excited because I thought that it meant we were going to start encouraging women to think about what they wanted to say yes to, to like think about their desires, which was really radical at the time because it would have been a huge shift from like, you're the gatekeeper. You need to only be thinking about where you want to draw the lines. Like, there's no room for you to ask what you want to get out of this or what you enjoy. Um, so I was like, yes means yes. Oh, yay. Like, we're going to finally have women kind of being the architect of their own sexual destinies. They're going to be thinking really proactively about what they want. And that didn't happen. <laughs> it just kind of instead took the gatekeeper model and it raised the stakes um, so that now it wasn't just that like you needed to be worried about saying no and not having your boundaries respected. It was that if you weren't screaming yes the entire time. You weren't maximally enthusiastic that it meant something really, really bad was happening to you. So can you talk a little bit about yes means yes? And I mean, do you, do you feel similarly about the promise of yes means yes? Or do you think that it's a good model that just that we should stick to when it comes
1: to consent? I agree with you. Actually, I really like that rant because I think it's, it gets at something really true. Um, I think there's like a a, a realization somewhere down there that consent keeps not having solved the problem. And so there are like these ever more sort of involved and adjective laden definitions. Like we go from consent, we go from no means no to yes means yes, from just consent to affirmative consent to enthusiastic consent, and none of them are doing it. Um, so yeah, it complicates consent, but it doesn't really make it that much different. It just moves the goalpost. And then for women, you would hope that it would, you know, sort of help them move from the gatekeeping role to really thinking about their desires. But for a lot of women, it's just kind of made it a little bit harder to say no and heighten the expectation to perform enthusiasm. And, you know, it makes realizing that you don't want something a little harder in some ways because it's like, well, I said yes to it. So like, could it be that bad? So like I talked to one woman in the book and uh, this interview came up and the essay that I wrote about consent that was extracted in the post, I was just like at a party. And anytime anyone heard during this book that I was writing something about sex, they would just corner me and tell me they're sex stories and, like, their problems.
0: It sounds amazing.
1: <laughs> you <laughs> it must does, have loved that. It, well, in some ways, it was actually really sad um, and was, like, in many ways, kind of an impetus to keep writing. But this woman, I'm talking to her and she's like, okay, well, I'll tell you this thing. Um, I'm going out with this guy I really like, et cetera, et cetera. He's great. But he chokes me during sex? And I mean, I guess I said yes, but I didn't really like it. What do you think? And it was kind of like under this sort of yes regime. She didn't feel comfortable even admitting like, actually, I don't like this thing. (laughs) Like I, my enthusiasm is waning and I don't have a way to express that within this context. And in that case, like, yes means yes hasn't solved the problem then because, you know, clearly her partner is still not thinking about her wants. She still doesn't feel comfortable, um, you know, expressing her desires. And also there's no way to talk about even like if that's something that should be considered good sex or ethical in that context.
0: So here's a question, um, and this might be an oversimplistic way of approaching this, but what was stopping her from, if not in the moment, then afterward saying, you know, I'm not actually super into the choking thing? Like what makes that so fraught to, to just express, especially in the confines of a committed relationship, you know, that you would prefer not to do
1: this thing? Yeah, I think that one of the problems with um, that's kind of plaguing our sexual culture today um, is one that we kind of paper over once we have consent as a mechanism. Um, I think there are still many questions of power dynamics um, that consent leaves us free to not address. So for some women, it might be like, okay, well, this person's a lot Larger than me. So, like, what am I going to do? Say no and be forced into this? I guess we'll just like keep it moving. Um, Or maybe someone is, you know, like they want a relationship and the other person, they're not sure. And so they feel kind of the power is on that person's side and they feel a little bit pressured into, you know, doing, going with that person's flow for that reason. And that's not something that. You know, consent can really take into account. Um, and that, and even saying that, you know, like I do think that women, and also I think they're just like societal norms around being female and the way that women are still brought up to be deferential to men, to like not rock the boat, to try and be nice. And we want to and need to continue to teach women to like overcome those things. But we also have to acknowledge that they're still a factor. And sometimes by being like, well, why didn't you just go? Um, or why didn't you just say no? That's still in many ways like throwing that gatekeeping role back onto the woman and you know, not asking anything of her male partner. And so that's actually why I propose this like new ethic or an idea of a new ethic in the book, willing the good of the other, which would be... Not just, you know, seeking what you can get from sex, uh, but actually taking care to make sure uh, that your partner's good, like your partner's enjoyment, your, your partner's, you know, common good is kept in mind as much as your own. And that means that you would, you know, actually maybe have to know your partner to figure out what that good is you know, have some conception of what sex is, and so what would be good in the context of sex, and take more into account when you come into these encounters, because consent doesn't really give an incentive to think about the complexity of power and gender and all the other things that go into a sexual encounter.
0: Mm. So... The where I think you know we are in, in disagreement is I really don't like the idea that just because of gender roles and you know patriarchal power dynamics going back through history, that every time a man and a woman come together, um, she's automatically at the wrong end of the power dynamic. You know, she's on the precipice of victimhood because just because she's a woman and he's a man. Um but that said, I think that when you talk about you know willing the good of the other, it strikes me that that is a framework that is very worthy, but also that makes casual encounters pretty much impossible. Because to know what is good for another person, you have to know the other person.
1: Yeah. Well, two thoughts there. I mean, one, I don't necessarily think that Acknowledging that power dynamics are in play uh, means that women are victims. I think we should get better at saying that like women and men are different and might come to things from different directions. That's fine. They're still equal and like worth equally worthy of respect and equally valid as persons. Like being aware of how people come to something differently doesn't mean that like one is a sad victim. And one it is powerful, or it doesn't necessarily have to be. And we should, you know, strive to not put everything into sort of like victim and winner categories. Um, so that's that's one thing. Um and then the casual sex question. I mean, you know, I do think that, yeah, actually, um if you are trying to <laughs> live by this ethic of willing the good of the other. It is in some ways a call for restraint. You know, if you, if you don't think that you can care for your partner though, if you, if you don't think that you can care about them, like, should you be having sex with them in that moment? And also then in that case, like, is that even necessarily so bad? I think so many of the situations that I've run into that people tell me about that they talk about are situations in which they were like yeah my partner wasn't thinking about me at all like I didn't I didn't feel like I was being listened to there is there's no empathy there and you know when I ask people what a good sexual encounter looks like, many of them would say things like care or even intensely and I think honorably in some ways love and I also don't think that, That means you can't have a casual sexual encounter. I think people can have, you know, really empathetic, like caring, and yet very intense one night stands. But I think it just means that you have to take a lot more responsibility um, and really think hard about what the good looks like in those situations instead of going into it only out for yourself and what you can get.
0: So um, I want to explore the idea of willing the care of the other. And when, if you have an existing relationship, um, particularly, you know, a a committed, exclusive and, and long term relationship, whether there's a point at which you've sort of earned the ability to be. Less concerned with what your partner is thinking and feeling because you you know you have this existing bond um, you trust each other. Maybe this is what I'm getting at is when you talk about the the girl who's who's seeing a guy. I, I assume they're exclusively dating. He chokes her during sex and she doesn't like it. And there's this question of you know why can't you say something at the time? You know, this fear of, well, what if I say no and he just keeps going? And that is at least in part a problem of being in a naked, literally, and vulnerable position with somebody you don't actually trust.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I don't know. It seems as though people are very afraid of being vulnerable and a lot of what's happening that's sort of dysfunctional sexually comes from people wanting to, you know, to get naked with somebody, which, you know, inherently makes them vulnerable, but without actually risking the vulnerability that comes from doing that. And so they want to stay like emotionally safe and kind of closed off um, and and then just hope for the best. Yeah. I mean, is there a point at which this comes down more to a question of you need to trust the person you're with than you need to know what exactly it is that you want.
1: Yeah. I see what you're saying. Um, That's really interesting. I think that there are, you know, maybe two parts to this too. And first I think I would kind of push back actually. Um, I think that there are, A lot of people and many, like almost, I think almost all of the people I talked to interviewed in this book, and I interviewed like dozens of people um, across different cities, you know, say that they want to be vulnerable, that they kind of, they want to be seen in a relationship and like kind of cared for in that way. And vulnerability is part of that. And that's something that they would find wonderful about sex in some ways. Um, and it's actually kind of a cultural misconception that what people are supposed to do, in fact, is be really chill, um, and be cool and invulnerable in relationships. And that like, doesn't actually necessarily feel natural to them, but they like feel pressed to go along with it. So that's one thing. Um, but the second about trust in relationships, I think that that's, I think that that's really meaningful. I mean, many of the people that I was talking to and um the situations that I was trying to explore were those that often happened like while dating or in casual sexual encounters, not in, you know, a long-term committed relationship where you've established a level of trust and intimacy with that with one or more, I guess, people. And I think in those situations when you do know the person, um, when you have established a bond of trust, um, it makes it, yeah, easier to try new things or to realize that, you know, sex can be used or had in different circumstances. Um, there are many different, you know, individual encounters of sex that one person can have in a relationship. like Maybe they're really intense, maybe they're deep, maybe it's like a maintenance sex thing or whatever. Um, But when you do (laughs) like, know a person and know that they care about you and you care about them, I think that does open up a space for vulnerability that a lot of people are looking for. Um, The question is how to get there. And I think that people are wondering how to get from a space of total casualness where they're having sex because they feel like they're supposed to and the baseline is that nobody cares about anyone else to the place that that they want to be in, um, which is a space that's open to vulnerability.
0: So what's interesting is that I think the kind of common wisdom, but it's also very outre at this point to say so, is that you might want to hold off on engaging in a sexual relationship until you've built that bond. But if you say that now to somebody who's, you know, who's asking for advice um, or who's sort of lamenting that they can't seem to get there, it's really, it doesn't seem to go over well. Um, and it seems to be taken as a form of slut shaming. I mean, what do you think? Does that mean that just one of these things that it's like, You know, it's not nice to hear, but it's also true. And so it's time to begin saying that again.
1: What's the solution? What is the solution? I mean, I think that A, it it doesn't have to be slut shamey to say that. Um, And I think that's also another sort of cultural misconception. Um, I think one of the things that I say in the book, first of all, that maybe relates to this in the broader question, is that we should. Be able to talk openly and have conversations about whether some things are good and some things are bad, or whether some things are better or worse than others. And saying that, you know, one approach is better than or seems to have good results more often than another approach doesn't necessarily need to be taken as a personal attack. Um, it doesn't have to be seen as horribly moralizing to you know, suggests an opinion. Um, And if we want to change the sexual culture in any way and make it better for more people, we have to be able to have these discussions without people immediately freaking out and saying that they're being shamed or stigmatized. And there are ways to do that. Having these discussions with, you know, care and empathy and actual concern, not just being out for control. I think that one way also into that conversation though, and one thing that I try and do in this book is simply ask the question, is what we're doing right now taking us to where we want to go? And if it's not, should we be doing something different? And what would that look like? I don't think it's shamey to ask the question, like, are you getting the outcomes that you want from the behavior you're um, embracing or what you're doing today? That's just how we make decisions. That's how we evaluate what's good for ourselves. Um, And so even in the book, you know, I have a section that's about sort of reclaiming the pause, you know, like the Stoics once said, if you receive an invitation to pleasure, pause. And I think even stopping to consider like, what does this choice mean? What are the pressures here? Do I care about this other person? Does this person care about me? It's not That hard to do. And yet even just stopping to think about that would bring us so much further, I think, in the direction of the good sex and, you know, good relationships that we're hoping for, that it could at least be a starting point.
0: (sighs) So I definitely do, before we uh, segue into our last uh, discussion, which I'm going to hold back for our premium subscribers to the podcast, um, I want to talk about porn. I think it's very important (laughs) that we discuss porn and the influence of porn on sex. Um, And right before we got on this call, I was um, scrolling Twitter and I saw somebody talking about how the influence of porn over especially the kind of adolescent male content conception of what sex can and should be is one of those things that really ought to be addressed at this point in like public school sex education um, that you know literally like as you sit the kids down and you tell them about pregnancy and you tell them about stds and you tell them about anatomy you also take a moment to say and like, you don't do anal with the mailman five minutes after you meet. That's not realistic. Like you know,
1: he's got a lot of mail to deliver. Just let him live his life. He's, he's a busy man,
0: um, and you know, and you don't know him. Um, but like, yeah, like there's there's room to not allow the young persons, and especially the young man's idea of what sex is be just completely shaped in a vacuum by the porn that he's consuming in private you know that there's like maybe it takes a village like maybe we should be adding this into the curriculum um do you have thoughts about that is that like a possible solution to the for, for instance the ubiquity of choking which is like clearly coming from porn into the mainstream right
1: yeah yeah i write about that in rethinking sex i mean you know Two of the top 10 most visited websites in the world are Xvideos and Pornhub. And in 2019, they averaged 115 million visits per day, which is the combined equivalent of Canada, Poland, the Netherlands, and Australia, like every day. Um, And it's clear in conversations with young women and young men that it is totally shaping men's desires and sort of the behaviors that they try to act out in sex and mainstreaming acts that weren't, you know, necessarily considered normal for a first or second uh, date much earlier. And honestly, women aren't pleased by it. And men on some level are also beginning to wake up to the fact that like, oh, this isn't great for me. Um, And yeah, I think that one of the things that one of the ways to help our sexual culture would simply be better and more honest sex ed early on, you know, not abstinence only sex ed uh, or like, here's how you have a baby. Don't get a disease by sex ed, (laughs) but sex ed that really talks about like, okay, this is what sex is. This is what sex maybe means to people. What does it mean to you? Like what does a relationship look like and what, can you expect it? What should you be doing? And like, where does pornography fit in? How realistic is it? Not realistic. But yeah, being honest and having these honest conversations early on uh, makes it much less likely that, you know, people are going to start testing it out and like trying to figure it out mid-act with a stranger.
0: Yeah, that just sounds complicated and needlessly so you know, it could be so much better and so much easier. So I want to segue now into talking about radical monogamy, which is just as exciting as it sounds. Um, But this is the part of the podcast that we're holding back for premium subscribers. So if you want to hear this bit, uh, you're going to have to pay. It's only fair. So with that, thank you Christine so much for taking the time to talk with me. Um the book is called Rethinking Sex: A Provocation. It is indeed provocative, really well written and wonderful and everyone should buy it. So uh, and is it uh, is it out now? What's the pub date?
1: Um it came out on March 22nd, so it is out now in hardback, ebook, audiobook, and I actually read the audiobook which was Fun for me.
0: Oh, that sounds great! You have a good voice for that. I've always wanted to read my own books on audio, but I have vocal fry, so they won't let me do it. <laughs> uh,
1: when I was reading it in the studio, the like the studio producer was like, "It's good that you have like kind of a calming voice for such a stressful topic." <laughs> I, <was> like, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> It's true.
0: Yeah. You, you do have a calming voice. I think, you know, that you're the person to deliver this provocative message in a way that makes us feel nevertheless kind of soothed. Um, so (laughs) (laughs) so thank you for that. No problem. Thanks for having me. This has been Feminine Chaos.